I'm going to give you my favorite message of all time. Can you guess what it is? No, that's not my favorite one. What's your favorite message? Jesus sitting at Mary's feet. Come on. You'll find out. Yes. All right. We did this three years ago. Most of y'all weren't here. I'm going to lay it on you now. Because this is, here's why I'm doing it. We just introduced Kings, some, some people here that are part of what we call Kings 30. Y'all know what Kings 30 is? It's not 30 people. It's not, our, it's not our best 30 people. It's not our top 30 tithers. It's not any of those things. It comes from a reference in the Old Testament that I'm going to show you here in a minute. But it's, it, it, the story I'm going to unpack, this is the why we do what we do. Why do we get in the fight? Why do we do this every Sunday? Why do we get up here and all this and the work and, the, and, 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 the, and, the, and they come up here at 8.30 and pray, you know, deal with the kids and all that kind of stuff? Why do we come in here and fix HVAC units that are broken down and mow grass that's broken down? All that, why, why do we do it? Here's why. We're going to get into it. So go ahead and get your Bibles this morning. I'm excited about this one right now, if you can't tell. First Chronicles chapter 11. First Chronicles chapter 11, y'all. This is about the, this is a guy named David, man. I love David. He is, he's just a, he's a guy after my own heart too. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. This is from the book of First Samuel. You'll know, if you know some of your biblical history, you'll know that Samuel was a prophet of God. We, t- we did a two-part teaching on him back in February, I think. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Samuel is one who stepped up sort of in, in this period in Israel's history where they did not have a king. Uh, this was after the season of the judges. Judges were these deliverers that God would raise up. And after that, God raised up this, this individual named Samuel who would be a prophet and be a leader of the people. Um, and he did well. But the time in Israel's history sort of came, you know, as, as Samuel was getting older, the people of Israel came to him. They began to look around at their neighbors and guess what their neighbors had? Their neighbors had king. Can we bring the lights up a little bit more too, Jonathan? Do you mind doing that? Um, there we go. House lights, I like that. All their neighbors had kings, so they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we, we really want a king. We want to be like those guys over there. And Samuel said, guys, you really don't want a king. I'm, trust me, you don't. It's just going to be bad for you. And they're like, no, we really do want a king. And by the way, we want that guy over there, the tall, good-looking dude named Saul. And so God allowed Saul to be, uh, to, 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 to be anointed and crowned as, as king, the first king of the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And Saul, again, was, he was head and shoulders. He was tall, tall and good-looking, like Jared, tall and good-looking, just like him. But Saul did not have a heart like Jared did. Saul was plagued with insecurity, plagued with self-doubt, plagued with selfishness and selfish ambition. And sure enough, you know, as history would, would, would uh, sort of would unfold, um, the anointing would be removed from Saul as king, would be placed on someone else. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we'll see that that someone else was a young teen boy whose name was David. David was the least in his clan. It wasn't even around. You know, when, when, Saul, when, when Samuel comes looking, this is kind of like the Cinderella story, you know, when the prince comes with the glass slipper door to door? This is kind of like Samuel goes door to door looking for who is God's anointed. 
All right, it's not you guys. Let me go to the next door. It's not you guys. Go to the next door. All right, we're going to the house of Jesse. Jesse, bring me your lads. Show me your men. And they would come out strong and strapping, and and Samuel would say, nope, not you. Nope, not you. Nope, not you. Are you sure there's no one else here? And Jesse, like a good father who forgets how many children he has, says, oh, that's right. There's one more. Sorry, little Davy. He's out in the back, but really, you really don't want him. He's kind of scrawny. Well, bring little Davy up, and little Davy comes up, and by the Spirit of God, Samuel says, aha, that is the leader of God's people. So in 1 Samuel 16, Saul, or, or Samuel rather, anoints David for the kingship pours oil over his head. Now, this is a, this, there's a, there's a whole other teaching about this. What happens when you are anointed for something, but you're in that in-between before you are crowned for that same thing? When God has anointed you for something, but you're still stuck waiting. Because what happens after he's anointed? Does he go and he's climb on the throne? No, he doesn't. He goes back to the pasture, herding sheep again. What's that like? You know, you got, you got the oil running down your beard. You're super excited. Adrenaline's running through your body. You're thinking to yourself, this is it. I've been dreaming of this. You know, my, finally my brothers are going to see that I'm, I can do something. And then the prophet leaves. Now what? Oh, man. I guess I go back to tending sheep. Thought I was anointed, but what do I do now? It's a hard place to be, but that's another sermon. Chapter 17, the next chapter is every sort of Sunday school kid knows this. David then, as a young teenage boy, fights this giant named Goliath. It's one of my favorite stories. I taught my son, Cohen, a number of years ago. The old, old, old Sunday school song, Only a Boy Named David, complete with emotions. We'd practice the motions, and we would be, I would be the giant, of course, obviously, you know, and my head would come tumbling down and all that stuff. We'd practice it, you know. My son knows David and Goliath. And in chapter 16, he's not even king yet. He's anointed, but he's not king. He fights Goliath. Chapters 18 and 19, we begin to sort of see this relationship build between a young David and King Saul. You see, Saul has an ongoing affliction. He's being tormented by evil spirits. And they come and they afflict him. And it seems that the only thing that can really help him is worship. I find I'm that way. My daughter Emma is that way. We both are just musical souls. We just love to be soaking in worship a lot. Many of you are that way. And it turns out... That young boy named David who killed the giant was also very gifted. He's a very gifted worshiper. He's a very gifted musician. And, 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 and Saul would bring him in, and David would play music and sing these songs that he composed. Many of them would be ones that we recite from the book of Psalms. And as David would play and worship, the spirit would leave Saul. And Saul would sort of return to a place of peace and harmony and could begin to breathe again. Thank you, David. Thank you for coming and ministering. Oh, you're welcome, my king. And they had this relationship. But in 18 and 19, Saul begins to turn on David. His heart begins to have a root of jealousy as he sees this young man is so gifted. He's great at everything he does. He can play music. He can write songs. He's incredible on the battlefield. 
Everywhere that he goes, the people are just like fawning over him. Every girl wants to be with him. This is not fair, says Saul. I'm the king. They should be talking about me and not about him. And Saul's jealousy begins to get the best of David. And here, here's the root of it. Chapter 18, verse 12 says this. It says, Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Oh, that hurts. Even Saul, I think, knows what's going on. He knows that his, anoint, his own anointing in the spirit has left him because of the choices that he's made. And his, the anointing has moved over to David, and he's just afraid. He's afraid of what happens because he knows God's not with me anymore. God's with you. And so this, this jealousy turns into rage, and this rage turns into violence. And upon several occasions, Saul is beginning to try to end David's life. Doesn't just, doesn't just hate him. He wants, he, wants to, to, he wants to kill him. He wants to put him down. He wants to end his life. Chapter 20, David, Jonathan goes, or, or David goes to Jonathan. Jonathan is, is, is Saul's son, a good friend of David's. David goes to Jonathan and says, Jonathan, you got to tell me what's going on. Listen, your, 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 your dad, he's losing his mind. He's going crazy. He wants to kill me. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done that's so terrible? I've been, I've been a faithful friend to you. I've been a faithful servant. I've been ministering to, to King Saul all this time. John says, look, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But in chapter 21, he begins to go on the run. Things have gotten, the situation has gotten um, so bad. He and Jonathan make a covenant, and they leave, and David goes on the run now. And he goes to a town in chapter 21 called Nob. And at this time, there is no, uh, there's no Jerusalem yet. There's no city of David yet. There's no great temple built yet. All we have is, is sort of the tabernacle that's moved from place to place, and in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Presence and wherever that goes. And it just so happens that at this point of history, Nob is where sort of the, the tabernacle and, and the Ark are. And there is Ahimelech the priest. David goes to him. David's on the run goes to Ahimelech the priest. Uh, and he discovers there that, that Saul has spies in the town of Nob. Not a good thing. And so he heads further west, keeps on going, keeps on leaving, heading west into the, into the, into the region of the Philistines. You know, the Philistines, of course, are the enemy of God's people. <laughs> David, is, David is not welcome there. He is just, he's just assassinated there. Number one dude, a guy named Goliath. They're not happy about him, but he heads into, he heads into Philistine territory, um, into the Philistine town of Gath. He discovers here, he gets there, he's on the run from Saul. He's like, I gotta hide from somewhere. I can't be, I can't be a knob. That's where the spies are. I'm gonna go into, the, I'm going to the enemy territory. I wanna hide, see what I can do. Goes in there, he finds out even there that his reputation has already preceded him. Gets to town and like people are, oh, you're David, aren't you? We've heard about you. We've heard about what you've done. We've heard about how, you know, they, they, we've heard the song, David has killed his, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his 10,000. You're something, aren't you, David? And David's thinking, oh my word, I can't get away from this. And he's, and he's, and he's running for his life. He's terrified. So again, this time he heads back east. He's gone as far west as he can. Now he's going to head back. I wish I had a map, but I don't. So you have to visualize it. He heads back east, this time to a region called Adullam. 
So if, if, if you can picture sort of in the middle of, the middle of Israel, you know, where, where Jerusalem is, you know that David was born in what town? As a lot, hold on, time out. A lot of history here. I'm throwing it at you. I'm sorry. Bear with me here. It's a cool story, but a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of stuff. All right, time in. Anybody know what town David was born in? Bethlehem. You got it. That was his hometown. My hometown is Greenfield, Indiana. That's where I was just last weekend. David's hometown was Bethlehem. Greenfield is about just a few miles, you know, 8, 10, 12 miles outside of Indianapolis. The same is kind of true for Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city. It will be a little, it will be a big city. It's not yet, but it will be a big city. And just, you know, maybe a day's walk outside is the town called Bethlehem where David was born. So Jerusalem is here, Bethlehem may be on this side. On the other side is a place, is a region called Adullam. This is a rocky region, a lot of hills, a lot of caverns, a lot of caves. It's the perfect place to go and hide. Sort of like going to, you know, Red River Gorge with your band of outlaws. You're going to go hide there. So he goes and he hides in this place in in the region of Adullam. And this is where chapter 22 begins. Let me read to you. From chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. All right, let me pray for us, and we're going to unpack this. Holy Spirit, what do you want to reveal to us today? Whatever it is, God, we want to have open hearts, open minds. Give us a glimpse, Lord, of your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. And so by the beginning of chapter 22, David is both anointed and rejected at the same time. That's a weird combination. Anointed by God, but rejected by men. At least most of the men in, uh, in authority or of influence. His own king and his king's army is after him. Yet he has this anointing upon him. There's something about him. And he, he goes and he hides in this cave... But I want you to know there's some people that begin to join him there. He's got a small group with him, and word kind of gets out. People know who David is. We've heard his reputation. Where's David now? Oh, he took off, and he went over to this city, and now he's on this city. Hey, did you hear, by the way, David's back? Really? Where is he? Oh, he's hiding down in one of the caves of Adullam. Really? This close? This close to Saul? This close to Jerusalem? Yeah. And I've heard he's building an army. But listen to who he's bringing in. First of all, his brothers and his household. Not too far away in Bethlehem were his older brothers, his cousins, his nephews. 
And it's just really kind of cool that those are the ones who first come and stand by his side. This is young David. This is the one that they kind of laughed at back in chapter 17 and said, what are you doing here? You're not going to fight a giant. You're just here to gawk. You're just here to rubberneck at this thing. Go home, David. But now, now they're saying, okay, we admit it. There's something about our brother. We don't understand it, but somehow God is on him. David, we're going to stand with this. So one by one, his brothers in his household, from his father's household, begin to come and join him in the cave. One day, there's 10 men there. The next day, wake up, hey, another two or three are coming in. Look, another four or five coming in. This number begins to grow. The next morning, there's a knock on the door. Look, look who else is coming. This is, the, this is the funniest line in the world right here. All those who are in distress and or in debt or discontented. I could tell you, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert here at organizational leadership. My brother is. He's got a PhD in it. I'm not an expert. But probably thinking that's not your top choice for guys you're raising up an army with. I mean, what, we planted a church three years ago. We're, we're, we're a young church now, you know, probably not a plant, but we're a young church now. Chuck, you remember that? We were not going out looking for those who are distressed or in debt or discouraged. That was not my top choice. I wanted the opposite. I wanted the ones who were like full of faith, highly motivated, had lots of money, and were ready to just take on the enemy. That's who I wanted. But it's like the total opposite is here. You know, David is in the cave and these ones are coming in and they're like, you know, oh, you know, whatever. We just, we left. We're so discouraged about what's going on in the world. You know, we see what Saul's doing. We don't like that. I'm really tired. Can we just, can we just, can we hang here with you for a little bit? Well, okay, buddy, what's your story? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of running from my life because I owe this guy like 500 bucks and he's going to kill me if he sees me again. So honestly, I'm just kind of here to hide. Can I come in and hide with you? All right, bud, come on in. One by one until that number grows to 20, 40, 50, 100, 200, 300, 400 men now in this small army inside this cave. And they're looking at David going, hey, David, you're it, bud. We've heard about you. We love your reputation, but we're we're, going to be your army. And included in these 400 are a group of 30, this unique group of 30. We don't really know sort of if, you know, why these 30, why, you know, if they were picked by David or if it's something that sets apart. The Bible calls them mighty men. We call them the 30 mighty men. Some lists, some, some parts of the Bible, you know, there may be a little bit more than 30, maybe 37 or something else. We don't really know exactly. We just round it to 30. So when we come down three years ago, we called them our king's 30. Who are the ones that have said, yes, we're going to stand with you in this fight, King Jesus. Count on us. That's where we get Kings 30, by the way. So of this group of 400, 30 of these are, are mighty men. And there's something, there's something about them. They are, they're, they're, they're not, they're not, um, they're not weak nobodies. These 30 are renowned warriors. They're fighters. They're professionals. And we read a little bit of their story in First Chronicles. Flip over to First Chronicles chapter 11.
First Chronicles chapter 11. And they have this incredible devotion to David. Again, David is not really legally the king yet. Legally, he is a fugitive. He's a nobody. But there's something about this king that they've said, we're with you. Chapter 11, look at, uh, or rather chapter 12, look at chapter 12, look at what it says about him. Chapter 12, verse 18, this is what they say. We are yours, O David. We are with you, son of Jesse. Chapter 12, verse 22, day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. But these men didn't want to just fight. They had an agenda. Chapter, verse 38 of chapter 12 says this, they came determined to make David king over all of Israel. So the Lord's been raising up David as a king. The Lord's been raising up an army who want to see him put on the throne. They know there's something about him that's unique. There's something about him that has God's favor upon him. And they're like, David, we're, we're going to fight with you. doesn't matter what happens. We're to the end because we believe that you belong on that throne. You are the rightful leader of this nation, not Saul. And he's got this powerful influence already over them. He's not, he's not been crowned king does not have the largest army in the world. He's not of nobility whatsoever. He's like the opposite of, of, of what conventional wisdom would say should be the king of a nation. But they see in him, these men see in him, the future and the destiny of their nation, their people. They look at him and they, they can see by the spirit of God, this is how things are supposed to be. David is supposed to be on the throne. So let's look at a story. This is the cool part. First Chronicles chapter 11. Let me read a little bit. Let me back up to 10. Tells about these mighty warriors. These were the chiefs of David's mighty warriors. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. This is the list of David's mighty warriors. Jeshobiam, a Hakmonite, was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men who he killed in one encounter. That's just nuts. You know how big a spear is? It's heavy. It weighs like 25 pounds or so. It's a beast. And this one dude kills 300 by himself with a spear. That's incredible. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Aoite, one of the three mighty warriors. He was with David at Pasdamim when the Philistines gathered there for battle. Look at this. At a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines. But they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. There's other stories in the rest of this about these, these mighty warriors, what they do. That's uh, 1 Chronicles 11. Here's our story, though. Here's why we do what we do. 
First Chronicles eleven fifteen. Three of the thirty chiefs came down to David to the rock at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Let me pause right there before I read any more. So he's in this cave. He's been here for a long time. His, our, the Lord's been raising up his army. It's gone from a dozen now, 400 now, more men, more and more coming by the day. It's not just the, <laughs> it's not just the, 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 the ones who are despairing and in debt. This time, God's bringing real warriors. He's bringing these monstrous men who can take down 300 with a single spear. And David is now at this place and begins to think about the past, begins to think about everything that has transpired, begins to think about his hometown, how simpler things were back then before all this started. The simple days of watching sheep, simple days of playing his harp and composing songs, the simple days of laying in the grass with the sun overhead, worshiping the Lord, listening to the Lord's voice. Begins to think about how easy those days were as a young boy in Bethlehem with his father and his brothers and his friends. Begins to think about all the things that he's not had since he left. All of a sudden, his mouth begins to get a little bit thirsty. You ever think about those things wherever you're from? Megan, she's from New Mexico, northern New Mexico, specifically Taos, New Mexico. There's some unique, peculiar things you can only get in northern New Mexico. True red chili you can only get in New Mexico. Every once in a while, Megan will say, oh, I would love to have just a bowl of red, they call it that, just a bowl of red from Orlando's down past the plaza. And I've been there, and I would say, yes, I would love to have that too. My mom is from Louisiana. I lived on the Gulf Coast. Every once in a while, I'll just think to myself, I would love to have a shrimp po' boy. Oh, a good one where the shrimp came right off the boat like yesterday. I would drive like 12 hours for it. David's having that moment right now. He's thinking to himself, okay, man, I'm thirsty. Y'all, I, I know we got water. I know y'all went and found some rainwater, but you know what I'd really love to have? I want some of that water from this one particular well there in Bethlehem. You guys, you don't understand how good this water is. It's like sweet, kind of like this fruity flavor. It's so good. Oh, I just want a drink of that water. And he says it out loud. So the three men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Y'all say, come on. I want to be there for that conversation where the three, hey, you two, come here, come here, come here, come here. Did you hear what David said? Yeah, he said he's thirsty. No, 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 no. He said he wants water from Bethlehem. Like, we can't go to bed. Are you kidding me? There's a garrison surrounding the town. We can't go in there. Guys, he wants water 
from Bethlehem. Let's do this. Are you kidding? What, who, like all of us? No, 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 no. Just, just the three of us. Come on, let's do this together. And the three hatch out a plan. I wonder what the plan was. I don't know, you know? For me, it'd be like, if it's me, I'm sneaking in undercover. I'm painting my face black. I'm going in. I'm like belly crawling my way in. You know, I'm sneaking water out, going back. These guys, no, no, no. The Bible says they broke through the garrison. These dudes are swinging swords and axes and punching faces to get to the well. They're like one dude's like pulling up water. The other guys are surrounding him, fighting off. This is my mind. I don't know how it is. This is my mind. I can imagine. It's okay. You know, they're fighting people off. All right, guys, I got, I got water. And they run away. They go back to the king. And they come into his presence. They say, David, King David, we got something for you. They reach behind their back and they pull out a skin full. Put it in his hands. Is it okay if I make up some of the details? I think so. He takes a, takes a little cork off of the skin of water. He breathes it in. And I bet he says something like, guys, this can't be what I think it is. They smile real big and say, yeah, it is. It is. It's that water from that well that you really wanted. And I don't know this for sure, but I bet David begins to, to weep. Because it says this, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back. David would not drink it. And it became for him the most priceless offering that he could give back to the Lord. And this story is, is so meaningful in the history of Israel that it's recounted years later at the end of David's life. It actually happens at the end, not of 1 Samuel, but at the end of 2 Samuel when they were recounting all the great things that he did. They tell the story again as if to say, you need to know what kind of leader David was. He inspired his men to greatness at the risk of everything. They risked their lives to bring it back, but David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Listen to this. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief over the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, so he became as famous as the three. He was doubly honored above the three and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Huh, what? Let's keep on going. 
Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabziel, performed great exploits. Listen to this. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Then he struck down an Egyptian who was five cubits tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went up against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Dude is bad. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he did not attain to the three. As if to say, listen, David was surrounded by incredible men who did incredible things. But what these three did was of profound significance. And the legacy of these three, their legacy is not on the battlefield, but their legacy was in the secret place with the king. I'm, I'm thinking that's the heart of it. I'm thinking when I see that, that's what the Spirit of God is saying to me. You want to be a mighty warrior easily? Let your legacy be in the secret place, in the cave where you can hear my heart. And this is what I found. I found that great risk comes from greater devotion. I want us to be, I want, I want to be, and I'm not, I'll admit it. I want to be a risk taker. By nature, I'm not. I want us to be, a, some of you are. Some of you are like so bold, you know, like you go up to perfect strangers and like, you know, evangelize them and lay hands on them. It's like, it terif- the thought of doing that terrifies me. I'm an introvert, <laughs> you know? I want to be a risk taker for the kingdom. But I'm discovering that that kind of risk is birthed from greater devotion. And I don't want you to miss the root of that, the root of that devotion. It's nearness to the king. Nearness to the king. Psalm 73. We'll put this up here. Psalm 73 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful faithful to you. Verse 28, But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge, and I may tell of all your works. Nearness to God, I think, is the the root of it all. Can we be close to him? Can we be closer to him than we were yesterday? Is it possible, Chuck? Is it possible that I can be closer to God than I've ever been? And here's, out of that comes listening. I think that's the second key. Here's the cool thing, by the way. You notice that what this, what David said This was not a command. This was not a law. David didn't say, I need a volunteer who will go and fetch me good water. He didn't say, I decree that we will storm into Bethlehem and bring me back water. There was no law. There was no command. There was no decree. There was no obligation whatsoever. But what was it? 
It was a heartbeat of the king of what he really desired. And these men were so close to him, day in and day out, so near to him, that when he says, he wasn't even speaking to anyone. He was just talking aloud. He was just having a quiet moment. It's like, oh my gosh, what's the water? And they overheard that because they're so near to him. And I want us, we are, we do this. I want us more and more. We got to move past just like, okay, what's the basic law of God that I can keep? What's the basic stuff that I can do and still be okay in God's eyes? What's the bare minimum that I need to do and still be, you know, honor God with my life? That's the basic stuff, but these ones are going, forget that. God, what do you really want to do in your heart? What if we can move past the commands of God being our sort of our standard for what we want to do to begin to the dreams of God to what we want to do? What if we want to hear what God says so much that God, if we just hear the slightest whisper out of God's own heart, we say, God, we're going to do that. Come on. Come on. Listening needs to risk. It says they broke through the camp. Risk. There's a great chance one of them could have died. There's a great chance all of them could have died. No guarantee of success. No guarantee of safety. They probably had that conversation. The kingdom is, is filled with risk takers, ordinary men and women like you and I, who will never be seen, never be heard, but have stepped out and taken immeasurable risk for the kingdom. Think about the woman with oil. We talked about that, Sasha. Breaking those social mores and coming into the presence of Jesus in a room filled with men pouring oil at his feet in a scandalous way. Think about the woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, she comes in, she touches. She is untouchable. She is not to touch anyone. She's unclean according to Mosaic law. But she reaches out and she touches the clothes of the most esteemed rabbi of their day. She should have been stoned, but instead she set, she set free. And risk leads to reward. And their reward is nothing more than giving the king what he desires. That's all. That's all they get. They bring to him a cup of the lifeblood of men. Some questions that I've been asking myself in recent months and years, the last two or three years, what am I, to what kingdom am I raising up my sons and daughters? To what cause am I pouring myself out for? And I, I, I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to shift our energy away from the heart of the king into being something else. A building, a church, a ministry. I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to, to, to build a kingdom for ourselves and miss what I think the Spirit of God is saying. And there's so many parallels in this story. I think of Jesus. 
anointed Messiah from the very beginning, but rejected by men, just like David. Surrounded by the least likely warriors, prostitutes and tax collectors, fishermen. Pretty much everybody that shouldn't be with him decided, no, we believe in you. There's a lot of irony in this too. Jesus himself brought back a cup of the lifeblood. And that cup too was poured out for you and for I. What if we could be a church of mighty men and women known for reckless love. That's what this is, by the way. This is reckless love. This is foolish love that the world will look at and say, that is foolishness. Why would you risk yourself and your family to do this? Because we know what our king wants. We've heard it. We will give our lives for what he wants. We'll give our lives to bring him what he deserves. And he doesn't want water from a well, but I do think that he wants the hearts and the lives of the families of Lexington. I do think he wants that. I do think he wants someone who will storm the gates, storm the enemy garrison to rescue men and women, boys and girls, and bring them back. That's what I want to be about, you know? Come on, let's stand up together. My time's up. I love you guys. I want us to do this together. I don't, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't, don't, don't misunderstand me that there's a connection between full devotion to Jesus and his kingdom and being a member of this church. That's not the connection I'm making. That's not a connection at all. We just happen to call our membership Kingstarter because there's a lot of parallels there. I don't want you to see this as a push for anything apart from radical devotion that leads to nearness to him, that leads to risk, that leads to reward for our king. So let me pray over you, let me bless you. Let's live in this reality. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your heart today. Ministry to our worship team, come on up. We got time, we're gonna do this song. This is a beautiful one. I'm, I'm, I wanna sing this, I want us to sing this together. Can we do that one? Do we have that ready? Oh, this is so good. I'm sorry, I interrupted my prayer to call them up. <laughs> Ah, Lord God. Can we be near to your heart? Can we be near to you? You are the true king, God. We've not found anything else worth giving our lives to. We've not found anyone else that we want to say yes to and enlist with. Just you, Lord. Just you, Jesus. Just you. There's no other philosophy, no other political system, no other religion, no other man or woman or worldview that comes close to how good and true you are.
You are more real than anything we've ever known. You are the sun, Lord, around which we orbit. You are gravity that keeps us close. You're the wind and the light. And no matter what exploits we might do in this world, Lord, we might do incredible things for the kingdom, Lord, we may do nothing in men's eyes. But God, we're going to be near to your heart. We're going to be close to you wherever you go. We're going to listen for your voice. And whatever you say for us to do, we're going to give our life for that. Even if we don't make it through the enemy garrison, we give our lives for the king. Amen.